Section 11 of Essays, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Essays, Book 2 by Michel de Montaigne. Translated by Charles Cotton. Of Books. I make no doubt but that I often happen to speak of things that are much better and more truly handled by those who are masters of the trade. You have here purely an essay of my natural parts, and not of those acquired. And whoever shall catch me tripping in ignorance will not in any sort get the better of me, for I should be very unwilling to become responsible to another for my writings who am not so to myself, nor satisfied with them. Whoever goes in quest of knowledge, let him fish for it where it is to be found. There is nothing I so little profess. These are fancies of my own, by which I do not pretend to discover things, but to lay open myself. They may peradventure one day be known to me, or have formerly been, according as fortune has been able to bring me in place where they have been explained. But I have utterly forgotten it, and if I am a man of some reading, I am a man of no retention, so that I can promise no certainty, more than to make known to what point the knowledge I now have has risen. Therefore, let none lay stress upon the matter I write, but upon my method of writing it. Let them observe in what I borrow, if I have known how to choose what is proper to raise or to help the invention, which is always my own. For I make others say for me, not before but after me, what, either for want of language or want of sense, I cannot myself so well express. I do not number my borrowings, I weigh them. And had I designed to raise their value by number, I had made them twice as many. They are all, or within a very few, so famed and ancient authors, that they seem, methinks, themselves sufficiently to tell who they are, without giving me the trouble. In reasons, comparisons, and arguments, if I transplant any into my own soil, and confound them amongst my own, I purposely conceal the author to all the temerity of those precipitate censors who fall upon all sorts of writings, particularly the late ones, of men yet living, and in the vulgar tongue which puts every one into a capacity of criticizing, and which seem to convict the conception and design as vulgar also. I will have them give Plutarch a fillip on my nose, and rail against Seneca when they think they rail at me. I must shelter my own weakness under these great reputations. I shall love any one that can unplume me, that is, by clearness of understanding and judgment, and by the sole distinction of the force and beauty of the discourse. For I who, for want of memory, am at every turn at a loss to, pick them out of their national livery, 
am yet wise enough to know, by the measure of my own abilities, that my soil is incapable of producing any of those rich flowers that I find growing there, and that all the fruits of my own growth are not worth any one of them. For this, indeed, I hold myself responsible. If I get in my own way, if there be any vanity and defect in my writings which I do not of myself perceive nor can discern when pointed out to me by another, for many faults escape our eye, but the infirmity of judgment consists in not being able to discern them when by another laid open to us. Knowledge and truth may be in us without judgment, and judgment also without them. But the confession of ignorance is one of the finest and surest testimonies of judgment that I know. I have no other officer to put my writings in rank and file, but only fortune. As things come into my head, I heap them one on another. Sometimes they advance in whole bodies, sometimes in single file. I would that every one should see my natural and ordinary pace, irregular as it is. I suffer myself to jog on at my own rate. Neither are these subjects which a man is not permitted to be ignorant in, or casually and at a venture to discourse of. I could wish to have a more perfect knowledge of things, but I will not buy it so dear as it costs. My design is to pass over easily, and not laboriously, the remainder of my life. There's nothing that I will cudgel my brains about. No, not even knowledge, of what value soever. I seek, in the reading of books, only to please myself by an honest diversion. Or, if I study, tis for no other science than what treats of the knowledge of myself and instructs me how to die and how to live well. Has meus ad metas sudet aportet equus. My horse must work according to my step. Propertius 4. I do not bite my nails about the difficulties I meet with in my reading. After a charge or two, I give them over. Should I insist upon them, I should both lose myself and time, for I have an impatient understanding that must be satisfied at first. What I do not discern at once is by persistence rendered more obscure. I do nothing without gaiety, continuation and a too obstinate endeavor, darkens, stupefies, and tries my judgment. My sight is confounded and dissipated with pouring. I must withdraw it and refer my discovery to new attempts. Just as, to judge rightly of the luster of scarlet, we are taught to pass the eye lightly over it and again to run it over at several sudden and reiterated glances. If one book do not please me, I take another and I never meddle with any but at such times as I am weary of doing nothing. I care not for much for new ones, because the old seem fuller and stronger. Neither do I converse much with Greek authors, because my judgment cannot do its work 
with imperfect intelligence of the material. Amongst books that are simply pleasant, of the moderns, Boccaccio's Decameron, Rabelais, and the Bossi of Johannes Secundus, if those may be ranged under the title, are worth reading for amusement. As to the Amadis and such kind of stuff, they had not the credit of arresting even my childhood. And I will moreover say, whether boldly or rashly, that this old heavy soul of mine is now no longer tickled with Aristo, no, nor with the worthy Ovid. His facility and inventions, with which I was formerly so ravished, are now of no more relish, and I can hardly have the patience to read them. I speak my opinion freely of all things, even of those that perhaps exceed my capacity, and that I do not conceive to be in any wise under my jurisdiction. And, accordingly, the judgment I deliver is to show the measure of my own sight, and not of the things I make so bold to criticize. When I find myself disgusted with Plato's Oxyochus, as with a work, with due respect to such an author be it spoken, without force, my judgment does not believe itself. It is not so arrogant as to oppose the authority of so many other famous judgments of antiquity, which it considers as its tutors and masters, and with whom it is rather content to err. In such a case, it condemns itself either to stop at the outward bark, not being able to penetrate to the heart, or to consider it by sortie false light. It is content with only securing itself from trouble and disorder. As to its own weakness, it frankly acknowledges and confesses it. It thinks it gives a just interpretation to the appearances by its conceptions presented to it but they are weak and imperfect. Most of the fables of Aesop have diverse senses and meanings, of which the mythologists choose some one that quadrates well to the fable, but, for the most part, tis but the first face that presents itself and is superficial only. There yet remain others more vivid, essential, and profound, into which they have not been able to penetrate and just so tis with me. But, to pursue the business of this essay, I have always thought that, in poesy, Virgil, Lucretius, Catullus, and Horace, by many degrees, excel the rest, and signally Virgil in his Georgics, which I look upon as the most accomplished piece in poetry and in comparison of which a man may easily discern that there are some places in his Aeneids to which the author would have given a little more of the file, had he had leisure. And the fifth book of his Aeneids seems to me the most perfect. I also love Lucan, and willingly read him, not so much for his style as for his own worth and the truth and solidity of his opinions and judgments. As for good Terence, the refined elegance and grace of the Latin tongue, I find him admirable in his vivid representation of our manners and the movements of the soul. Our actions throw me at every turn upon him, 
and I cannot read him so often that I do not still discover some new grace and beauty. Such as lived near Virgil's time complain that some should compare Lucretius to him. I am of the opinion that the comparison is, in truth, very unequal. I believe that, nevertheless, I have much ado to assure myself in when I come upon some excellent passage in Lucretius. But if they were so angry at this comparison, what would they say to the brutish and barbarous stupidity of those who nowadays compare him with Ariosto? Would not Ariosto himself say, O saclum incipiens et inficatum! O stupid and tasteless age! Catullus 43.8 I think the ancients had more reason to be angry with those who compared Plautus with Terence, though much nearer the mark, than Lucretius with Virgil. It makes much for the estimation and preference of Terence that the father of Roman eloquence has him so often, and alone of his class, in his mouth, and the opinion that the best judge of Roman poets, Horace de Arte Poetica 279, has passed upon his companion. I have often observed that those of our times who take upon them to write comedies, in imitation of the Italians, who are happy enough in that way of writing, take three or four plots of those of Plautus or Terence to make one of their own, and crowd five or six of Boccaccio's novels into one single comedy that which makes them so load themselves with matter is the diffidence they have of being able to support themselves with their own strength. They must find out something to lean to, and not having of their own stuff wherewith to entertain us. They bring in the story to supply the defect of language. It is quite otherwise with my author. The elegance and perfection of his way of speaking makes us lose the appetite of his plot. His refined grace and elegance of diction everywhere occupy us. He is so pleasant throughout. Liquidus, puroque similimus omni. Liquid and likest the purer river. Horace, Epistolae, 2, 120 and so possesses the soul with his graces that we forget those of his fable. This same consideration carries me further. I observe that the best of the ancient poets have avoided affectation in the hunting after not only fantastic Spanish and Petrarchic elevations, but even the softer and more gentle touches, which are the ornament of all succeeding poesy. And yet there is no good judgment that will condemn this in the ancients, and that does not incomparably more admire the equal polish and that perpetual sweetness and flourishing beauty of Catullus's epigrams than all the stings with which Marshall arms the tales of his. This is by the same reason that I gave before, as Marshall says of himself, Minus illi ingenio laborandum fuit, in cuius locum materia successerit. He had the less for his wit to do that the subject itself supplied what was necessary. Marshall, 
profatio ad librum eight. The first, without being moved or without getting angry, make themselves sufficiently felt. They have matter enough of laughter throughout. They need not tickle themselves. The others have need of foreign assistance. As they have the less wit, they must have the more body. They mount on horseback because they are not able to stand on their own legs. As in our balls, those mean fellows who teach to dance, not being able to represent the presence and dignity of our noblesse, are fain to put themselves forward with dangerous jumping and other strange motions and tumblers tricks. And the ladies are less put to it in dance, where there are various coupes, changes, and quick motions of body than in some other of a more sedate kind where they are only to move a natural pace and represent their ordinary grace and presence. And so I have seen good drolls when in their own everyday clothes and with the same face they always wear give us all the pleasure of their art when their apprentices, not yet arrived at such a pitch of perfection, are fain to meal their faces, put themselves into ridiculous disguises, and make a hundred grotesque faces to give us whereat to laugh. This conception of mine is nowhere more demonstrable than in comparing the Aeneid with Orlando Furioso, of which we see the first, by dint of wing, flying in a brave and lofty place, and always following his point. The latter fluttering and hopping from tail to tail as from branch to branch, not daring to trust his wings, but in very short flights, and perching at every turn, lest his breath and strength should fail. Ex cursusque breves tentat, and he attempts short excursions. Virgil, Georgics, 4, 194. These, then, as to this sort of subjects, are the authors that best please me. As to what concerns my other reading, that mixes a little more profit with the pleasure, and whence I learn how to marshal my opinions and conditions, the books that serve me to this purpose are Plutarch, since he has been translated into French, and Seneca. Both of these have this notable convenience suited to my humor, that the knowledge I there seek is discoursed in loose pieces that do not require from me any trouble of reading long, of which I am incapable. Such are the minor works of the first and of the epistles of the latter, which are the best and most profiting of all their writings. "'Tis no great attempt to take one of them in hand, and I give over at pleasure. For they have no sequence or dependence upon one another. These authors, for the most part, concur in useful and true opinions, and there is this parallel betwixt them that fortune brought them into the world about the same century.' They were both tutors to two Roman emperors, both sought out from foreign countries, both rich and both great men. Their instruction is the cream of philosophy, 
and delivered after a plain and pertinent manner. Plutarch is more uniform and constant, Seneca more various and waving. The last toiled and bent his whole strength to fortify virtue against weakness, fear, and vicious appetites. The other seems more to slight their power, and to disdain to alter his pace and to stand upon his guard. Plutarch's opinions are platonic, gentle, and accommodated to civil society. Those of the other are stoical and epicurean, more remote from the common use, but, in my opinion, more individually commodious and more firm. Seneca seems to lean a little to the tyranny of the emperors of his time, and only seems, for I take it for certain that he speaks against his judgment when he condemns the action of the generous murderers of Caesar. Plutarch is frank throughout. Seneca abounds with brisk touches and sallies, Plutarch with things that warm and move you more. This contents and pays you better. He guides us, the other pushes us on. As to Cicero, his works that are most useful to my design are they that treat of manners and rules of our life. But, boldly to confess the truth, for since one has passed the barriers of impudence, there is no bridle, his way of writing appears to be negligent and uninviting. For his prefaces, definitions, divisions, and etymologies take up the greatest part of his work. Whatever there is of life and marrow is smothered and lost in the long preparation. When I have spent an hour in reading him, which is a great deal for me, and try to recollect what I have thence extracted of juice and substance, for the most part I find nothing but wind, for he has not yet come to the arguments that serve to his purpose, and to the reasons that properly help to form the knot I seek. For me, who only desire to become more wise, not more learned or eloquent, these logical and Aristotelian dispositions of parts are of no use. I would have a man begin with the main proposition. I know well enough what death and pleasure are. Let no man give himself the trouble to anatomize them to me. I look for good and solid reasons at the first dash to instruct me how to stand their shock for which purpose neither grammatical subtleties nor the quaint contexture of words and argumentations are of any use at all. I am for discourses that give the first charge into the heart of the redoubt, his languish about the subject. They are proper for the schools, for the bar, and for the pulpit, where we have leisure to nod and may awake a quarter of an hour after, time enough to find again the thread of the discourse. It is necessary to speak after this manner to judges, whom a man has a design to gain over, right or wrong, 
to children and common people, to whom a man must say all and see what will come of it. I would not have an author make it his business to render me attentive, or that he should cry out fifty times, Oye, as the heralds do. The Romans, in their religious exercises, began with hoc age, as we in ours do with sursum corda. These are so many words lost to me. I come already fully prepared for my chamber. I need no allurement, no invitation, no sauce. I eat the meat raw, so that instead of whetting my appetite by these preparatives, they tire and pall it. Will the license of the time excuse my sacrilegious boldness if I censure the dialogism of Plato himself as also dull and heavy, too much stifling the matter, and lament so much time lost by a man who had so many better things to say in so many long and needless preliminary interlocutions. My ignorance will better excuse me in that I understand not Greek so well as to discern the beauty of his language. I generally choose books that use sciences not such as only lead to them. The two first and Pliny and their like have nothing of this hoc age. They will have to do with men already instructed, or if they have, tis a substantial hoc age, and that has a body by itself. I also delight in reading the epistles to Atticus, not only because they contain a great deal of the history and affairs of his time, but much more because I therein discover much of his own private humors, for I have a singular curiosity, if I have said elsewhere, to pry into the souls and the natural and true opinions of the authors with whom I converse. A man may indeed judge of their parts, but not of their manners nor of themselves by the writings they exhibit upon the theater of the world. I have a thousand times lamented the loss of the treatise Brutus wrote upon virtue, for it is well to learn the theory from those who best know the practice. But seeing the matter preached and the preacher are different things. I would as willingly see Brutus and Plutarch as in a book of his own. I would rather choose to be certainly informed of the conference he had in his tent with some particular friends of his the night before a battle than of the harangue he made the next day to his army, and of what he did in his closet and his chamber than what he did in the public square and in the Senate. As to Cicero, I am of the common opinion that, learning accepted, he had no great natural excellence. He was a good citizen, of an affable nature, as all fat, heavy men, such as he was, usually are, but given to ease, and had in truth a mighty share of vanity and ambition. Neither do I know how to excuse him for thinking his poetry fit to be published. Tis no great imperfection to make ill verses, 
but it is an imperfection not to be able to judge how unworthy his verses were of the glory of his name. For what concerns his eloquence, that is totally out of all comparison, and I believe it will never be equaled. The younger Cicero, who resembled his father in nothing but in name, whilst commanding in Asia, had several strangers one day at his table, and, amongst the rest, Cestius seated at the lower end, as men often intrude to the open tables of the great. Cicero asked one of his people who that man was, who presently told him his name. But he, as one who had his thoughts taken up with something else, and who had forgotten the answer made him, asking three or four times over and over again the same question, the fellow, to deliver himself from so many answers and to make him know him by some particular circumstance, "'Tis that Cestius," said he, "'of whom it was told you that he makes no great account of your father's eloquence in comparison of his own." At which Cicero, being suddenly nettled, commanded poor Cestius presently to be seized and caused him to be very well whipped in his own presence, a very discourteous entertainer. Yet even amongst those who, all things considered, have reputed his eloquence incomparable, there have been some who have not stuck to observe some faults in it, as that great Brutus his friend, for example, who said, "'Twas a broken and feeble eloquence, fractum et elumbem." The orders also, nearest to the age wherein he lived, reprehended in him the care he had of a certain long cadence in his periods, and particularly took notice of these words, Esse videatur, which he there so often makes use of. For my part, I more approve of a shorter style, and that comes more roundly off. He does, though, sometimes shuffle his parts more briskly together, but tis very seldom. I have myself taken notice of this one passage. Ego vero me minus diu senem malem, quam esse senem ante quam essem. I had rather be old a brief time than be old before old age. Cicero de Senectute, 10. The historians are my right ball, for they are pleasant and easy and where man in general, the knowledge of whom I hunt after, appears more vividly and entire than anywhere else. The easiest of my amusements, the right ball at tennis, being that which coming to the player from the right hand is much easier played with. Cost. The variety and truth of his internal qualities, in gross and piecemeal, the diversity of means by which he is united and knit, and the accidents that threaten him. Now those that write lives, by reason they insist more upon counsels than events, more upon what sallies from within than upon what happens without, 
are the most proper for my reading, and therefore, above all others, Plutarch is the man for me. I am very sorry we have not a dozen Laertii, Diogenes Laertius, who wrote the lives of the philosophers, or that he was not further extended, for I am equally curious to know the lives and fortunes of these great instructors of the world as to know the diversities of their doctrines and opinions. In this kind of study of histories, a man must tumble over, without distinction, all sorts of authors, old and new, French or foreign, there to know the things of which they variously treat. But Caesar, in my opinion, particularly deserves to be studied, not for the knowledge of the history only, but for himself, so great an excellence and perfection he has above all the rest. Though Sallust be one of the number, in earnest I read this author with more reverence and respect than is usually allowed to human writings. One, while considering him in his person, by his actions and miraculous greatness, and another in the purity and inimitable polish of his language, wherein he not only excels all other historians, as Cicero confesses, but, peradventure, even Cicero himself. Speaking of his enemies with so much sincerity in his judgment, that the false colors with which he strives to palliate his evil cause and the ordure of his pestilent ambition accepted, I think there is no fault to be objected against him, saving this, that he speaks too sparingly of himself, seeing so many great things could not have been performed under his conduct, but that his own personal acts must necessarily have had a greater share in them than he attributes to them. I love historians, whether of the simple sort or of the higher order. The simple, who have nothing of their own to mix with it, and who only make it their business to collect all that comes to their knowledge, and faithfully to record all things, without choice or discrimination, leave to us the entire judgment of discerning the truth. Such, for example, amongst others, is honest Froissart, who has proceeded in his understanding with so frank a plainness that, having committed an error, he's not ashamed to confess and correct it in the place where the finger has been laid, and who represents to us even the variety of rumors that were then spread abroad and the different reports that were made to him. "'Tis the naked and informed matter of history, "'and of which every one may make his profit "'according to his understanding. "'The more excellent sort of historians "'have judgment to pick out "'what is most worthy to be known, "'and of two reports, "'to examine which is the most likely to be true. "'From the condition of princes and their humors, "'they conclude their counsels, and attribute to them words proper for the occasion. Such have title to assume the authority of regulating our belief to what they themselves believe. But certainly this privilege belongs to very few. For the middle sort of historians, 
of which the most part are, they spoil all. They will chew our meat for us. They take upon them to judge of, and consequently to incline the history to their own fancy. For if the judgment lean to one side, a man cannot avoid resting and writhing his narrative to that bias. They undertake to select things worthy to be known, and yet often conceal from us such a word, such a private action, as would much better instruct us. Omit as incredible such things as they do not understand, and peradventure some because they cannot express good French or Latin. Let them display their eloquence and intelligence, and judge according to their own fancy. But let them withal leave us something to judge of after them, and neither alter nor disguise, by their abridgments and at their own choice, anything of the substance of the matter, but deliver it to us pure and entire in all its dimensions. For the most part, and especially in these latter ages, persons are called out for this work from amongst the common people, upon the sole consideration of well-speaking, as if we were to learn grammar from them, and the men so chosen have fair reason, being hired for no other end and pretending to nothing but babble, not to be very solicitous of any part but that, and so with a fine jingle of words prepare us a pretty contexture of reports they pick up in the streets. The only good histories are those that have been written by those themselves who held command in the affairs whereof they write, or who participated in the conduct of them, or at least who have had the conduct of others of the same nature. Such are almost all the Greek and Roman historians, for several eyewitnesses having written of the same subject at the time when grandeur and learning commonly met in the same person, if there happened to be an error, it must of necessity be a very slight one, and upon a very doubtful incident. What can a man expect from a physician who writes of war, or from a mere scholar treating of the designs of princes? If we could take notice how scrupulous the Romans were in this, there would need but this example. Asinius Pollio found in the histories of Caesar himself something misreported, a mistake occasioned either by reason he could not have his eye in all parts of his army at once, and had given credit to some individual persons who had not delivered him a very true account, or else for not having had too perfect notice given him by his lieutenants of what they had done in his absence. Suetonius, Life of Caesar, 56 by which we may see, whether the inquisition after truth be not very delicate, when a man cannot believe the report of a battle from the knowledge of him who there commanded, nor from the soldiers who were engaged in it, unless, after the method of a judicial inquiry, 
the witnesses be confronted and objections considered upon the proof of the least detail of every incident. In good earnest, the knowledge we have of our own affairs is much more obscure, but that has been uh, sufficiently handled by Baudin, and according to my own sentiment. In the work by Jean Baudin, entitled Methodus ad Faculem Historiarum Cognitionem, 1566. A little to aid the weakness of my memory, so extreme that it has happened to me more than once to take books again into my hand as new and unseen that I had carefully read over a few years before and scribbled with my notes. I have adopted a custom of late to note at the end of every book, that is, of those I never intend to read again, the time when I made an end on it, and the judgment I had made of it, to the end that this might at least represent to me the character and general idea I had conceived of the author in reading it, and I will here transcribe some of those annotations. I wrote this some ten years ago in my Guicciardini, of what language soever my books speak to me in, I always speak to them in my own. He is a diligent historiographer, from whom, in my opinion, a man may learn the truth of the affairs of his time, as exactly as from any other, in the most of which he was himself also a personal actor and in honorable command. There is no appearance that he disguised anything, either upon the account of hatred, favor, or vanity, of which the free censures he passes upon the great ones, and particularly those by whom he was advanced and employed in commands of great trust and honor, as Pope Clement VII, give ample testimony. As to that part which he thinks himself the best at, namely his digressions and discourses, he has indeed some very good, and enriched with fine features, but he is too fond of them, for to leave nothing unsaid, having a subject so full, ample, and almost infinite, he degenerates into pedantry and smacks a little of scholastic prattle. I have also observed this in him, that of so many souls and so many effects, so many motives and so many counsels as he judges, he never attributes any one to virtue, religion, or conscience, as if all these were utterly extinct in the world. And of all the actions, how brave soever in outward show they appear in themselves, he always refers the cause and motive to some vicious occasion or some prospect of profit. It is impossible to imagine but that amongst such an infinite number of actions as he makes mention of, there must be some one produced by the way of honest reason. No corruption could so universally have infected men that some one would not escape the contagion, which makes me suspect that his own taste was vicious, 
whence it might happen that he judged other men by himself. In my Philippe de Comines there is this written. You will find here the language sweet and delightful, of a natural simplicity, the narration pure, with the good faith of the author conspicuous therein, free from vanity when speaking of himself, and from affection or envy when speaking of others. His discourses and exhortations rather accompanied with zeal and truth than with any exquisite sufficiency, and throughout authority and gravity, which bespeak him a man of good extraction and brought up in great affairs. Upon the memoirs of Monsieur Dubellet I find this, Tis always pleasant to read things written by those that have experienced how they ought to be carried on, but withal it cannot be denied but there is a manifest decadence in these two lords, Martin Dubellet and Guillaume de Lanier, brothers who jointly wrote the memoirs. From the freedom and liberty of writing that shine in the elder historians, such as the Sieur de Joinville, the familiar companion of Saint-Louis, Aguinard, Chancellor to Charlemagne, and of later date, Philippe de Comines. What we have here is rather an apology for King Francis against the Emperor Charles V than history. I will not believe that they have falsified anything, as a matter of fact, but they make a common practice of twisting the judgment of events, very often contrary to reason, to our advantage, and of omitting whatsoever is ticklish to be handled in the life of their master. Witness the proceedings of Messieurs de Montmorency and of de Biron, which are here omitted. Nay, so much as the very name of Madame d'Estamp is not here to be found. Secret actions an historian may conceal, but to pass over in silence what all the world knows, and things that have drawn after them public and such high consequences, is an inexcusable defect. In fine, Whoever has a mind to have a perfect knowledge of King Francis and the events of his reign, let him seek it elsewhere, if my advice may prevail. The only profit a man can reap from these memoirs is in the special narrative of battles and other exploits of war, wherein these gentlemen were personally engaged. In some words and private actions of the princes of their time, and in the treaties and negotiations carried on by the Seigneur de Lanier, where there are everywhere things worthy to be known, and discourses above the vulgar strain. End of section 11. Reading by Malone.